My name is Amanda, and I'm going to be talking about sex trafficking and social justice and the church. So I've been loving everything I've heard so far, and in fact, as I was sitting there, I was thinking about, oh yeah, I'm going to add that in, and oh yeah, I'm going to talk more about that. So I think I added about another 20 minutes to this session. No problem, right? We'll see how it goes. Um, I'm, I'm thankful to be able to be here and talk about this issue because it is an important issue in our time, and thankfully the media uh, has been drawing more attention to the reality of sex trafficking and sexual exploitation in our communities. But when I say the word sex trafficking, I am curious, like, what picture comes to mind? Um, does anyone think of another country? Is that kind of what comes to mind? How about the movie Taken? Never seen it? Okay. Taken? It's not true anyway, but that's an another story. Um, how about Aurora? Aurora? Okay. Must be a North Seattle crew up here. Okay. What el anything else come to mind? What comes to mind? Just shout it out. Porn? Anything else? Say it again. Sturgis? Should I? Okay. Okay. The Super Bowl, World Cup, yeah, like large sporting events. We hear a lot about sex trafficking during that time. Um, do, you, do you think more often of foreign nationals, those who don't speak English or from another country, or those who are, you know, born and raised in America, speak English as their first language? Both? Yeah. Good stuff. So my work is done here. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But I think what I do tend to hear most often is that sex trafficking happens over there. Somewhere else other than here, um, people are abducted or moved from country to country, but it doesn't, uh, it doesn't happen that much here. Or it certainly doesn't happen to girls and boys that grow up in our neighborhoods. But that's not really the case. In fact, Seattle has a long history with the sex trade. In 2010, the Seattle Met Magazine wrote an article um, called Seattle's History uh, as the Red Light, the Red Light History of Seattle. And in it, they said this, long before Seattle made jets, software, or coffee, it built crib houses, box houses, and brothels, lots of them, including the world's biggest. Prostitution runs as deep as rain through Seattle's history. This is the chronicle of a city built on sin. In the mid to late 1800s, Seattle touted having the, the nation's largest and most concentrated red light district. In it, over 500 women were working for sexual transactions. And this wasn't happening underground. People who were in the government were involved in it, police were involved in it, it was well known, and it was a, a point of pride for the city to have the biggest red light distri district in the nation. In fact, this guy, Hiram Gill, he was a graduate of UW Law School in 1910. After serving on the city council, he ran for mayor. He was labeled as the would-be red light mayor, and he won. And he worked with the police chief and conspired to build a 500-room brothel on Beacon Hills West Slope, the largest brothel in the world. 
right here. Less than 100 years later, 1986, this is still happening. Not the world's largest brothel, but the, the sex trade in Seattle. One that has moved a little bit further underground, but in 1986, Seattle Police Department finished the year with more than 2,000 prostitution arrests, an all-time record. So Seattle really has been a hotbed for the sex trade. In 2008, Deborah Boyer, she's a local anthropologist and researcher. Uh, she did a study on youth involvement in prostitution. You can find this online. It's called Who Pays the Price? And she found that anywhere between 300 and 500 youth were being trafficked in the commercial sex industry in any given night in Seattle. A little bit further along last year, you might have heard or seen in the news, there was a prostitution sting over in Bellevue in which they closed down several apartments which were being used as brothels. And again, last year, the Seattle undercover police uh, set up a massage parlor as a sting where they put ads online inviting men to this massa particular massage parlor for sexual acts. Over 204 men came to the massage parlor and were arrested over just a couple of days. Now, it is fairly common for the church community to keep some distance from the sex industry for good reasons, but one of the reasons sometimes is this idea that those people that are involved in the sex trade, whether they're selling sex or purchasing sex, um, they want to be there. They choose to be there. And that this is the way that they have decided to earn a living or make an income or that they believe this is empowering for themselves. And the reality is that might be true for some, but it's maybe 9 to 11% of the people involved in the sex trade who are selling sex want to be there or have made that choice. And it's helps, I think, to understand a little bit more about what sexual exploitation and trafficking really is and what does this choice look like. So commercial sexual exploitation, another term for sex trafficking, means that there is an exchange of sex for something of value. Could be food, could be money, could be shelter, clothing, um, anything of material good or value as a result of force, fraud, or coercion. So physical force, they're get, um, deceived into believing they were taking one job and it ends up being um, performing sexual acts in order to maintain a place to live or maintain some form of income. Or coercion, if you don't do this, I will leave you. I will hurt someone in your family. So anybody who is engaged in the commercial sex industry as a result of those things, is a victim of sex trafficking, or if the individual is under 18 years old, regardless of whether there's force, fraud, or coercion. So anybody who is involved in a commercial sex act under the age of 18 is considered a trafficking victim by federal law. And sex acts, commercial sex acts can involve uh, prostitution, which you may see on North Aurora. It can involve pornography. It can include stripping, dancing in strip clubs, uh, survival sex, and more. Even more important than understanding the terms and what it means is understanding consent. Consent means that you are giving permission for somebody else to follow through with something that they intend to do. But for consent to be present, two criteria have to be met. First, 
the individual has to have the developmental capacity to reason the choice being made. So they understand the consequences of saying yes to something or agreeing to something. And two, the individual must believe that she or he has more than one option in the circumstance to which they are consenting. And I think this is the crux of the issue as it relates to the sex trade. And this is how it overlaps with social justice. Because when there are, are not, when someone believes that there are not other options available and that this is their only option, they are now experiencing the oppression of the sex trade and should be considered a victim of sexual exploitation. Lots of folks involved in this industry. We've got the victims, the vulnerable people, we've got those who buy sex, and we've got traffickers, otherwise known as, known as pimps or gangs. And we'll just talk a little bit, we'll talk primarily about vulnerable people involved, but then, then just highlight the other two before we move on to how the church can respond. So some of the vulnerable people involved, girls, obviously, boys, queer youth, those who identify as lesbian, gay, transgender, bisexual, and any economic class or race. But sexual exploitation disproportionately affects those who are youth of color, in poverty, queer, and transgendered. So just to highlight some of the demographics, um, so we can somewhat relate this to what Travis was sharing around um, race and uh, privilege. When we look at the demographics of minor victims compared to the general population, the blue is a general population and the red are victims. So we see if we have the general, in the general population we have whites at the 70 line, but um, white general population around 70, but in terms of victims of trafficking at 43, but for blacks they're at five, but for, in terms of victims of trafficking, they're at 43, same as the white population. We see a disproportionate ratio of the number of people of color who are being victimized in the sex trade compared to white youth. Let's talk about a couple of cases. This, these are examples, so not necessarily someone specific that we've worked with, but could be someone specific that we've worked with. Brianna. Brianna is a teenage girl. She's walking through Westlake Mall. You been to Westlake Mall? Ever just kind of hung out for like 20 minutes, kind of waiting around? Well, it only takes about that much time for a young girl, especially a teenage girl, if she's alone, to be approached by a potential trafficker and be recruited. She might not know that's what's happening, but it's not uncommon. So Brianna is walking around debating whether or not to return home because she experiences a lot of abuse at home, dysfunction in the family, drug use, um, absent father. She describes her home as overflowing with this dysfunction and feels like it's just more uh, safe and she knows what to expect if she stays away from home. As she's walking alone, she's interrupted. Oh girl, you are so beautiful. And she looks up to see this handsome older guy. She blushes. Want to hang out, he says. And immediately swept up in his charm and desperate for this attention and maybe the potential for love, um, unlike she's experienced before, she starts, she agrees to go to McDonald's with him and over cheeseburgers, she starts spilling all of her personal details about her family life and about the struggles at home and about the abuse and how she never wants to go home again. 
And with the dollar signs that are spinning in his mind, dollar signs that she can't see yet, Mr. Charming is listening to her and responding to her. And she can tell by the way that he's looking at her that he sees her. And she feels heard. And she can tell that he knows her and he gets her. And maybe for the first time in a long time, she feels like somebody cares. And then it's as if he's been waiting all along for this very moment to put, um, to put his hooks in. He begins to paint the sweetest dream she's ever heard. And he weaves his words like medicine through these wounds that he, she has made known to him. And he says, I knew there was a reason I met you. I have been sent to protect you. That's what I'm here for. I can't help it. I have to do it. Now that I know, I'm going to stick by your side, and I'm not going to let anyone hurt you again. I'm going to make sure you have a nice place to sleep at night. I'm going to take you shopping. I'm going to give you everything you need, and it's going to be you and me, ride or die, forever. I will be yours, and you will be my girl. We'll travel the world, and we'll have the nicest things. He promises her. And she's swept away in the fantasy of, the, of it all. Maybe this is the real thing. Maybe this is true. Maybe she can have this kind of love. Maybe it was the perfect day to be at Westlake. And over the next couple of weeks, she sees it is true. He gets her nails done. He gets her hairs done. He gets hairs, hair done. He, gets, he buys her all new clothes. She feels like a new person. He's doting on her. He's texting her all the time. Clearly, he loves her. And now she has no doubt in her mind that this is the real thing, that she has found true love, and that she is never going back home. She's never turning back. He hooks her. And then in a matter of days or weeks, maybe even months, he flips the switch. Hey, baby, I just need you to do this one thing for me. I just need some help with some bills this month. I'm just, I'm going to show you what to do. I'm going to tell you how to do it. It's going to be fine just this one time. We're going to make a little extra money and we'll get by and then we'll just move on. Or, hey, since you're already having sex anyway, I think, I think you should get paid for it. That way we can have all of the things we want sooner and faster and we can really make our dreams come true. And because this fantasy is looming in her mind and she doesn't want to lose out on the relationship, she buys into it. And she's willing to do this because she doesn't want to risk losing him. So she'll do whatever it takes. She'll take a date. She'll have sex with a stranger for the first time. She'll cry. She'll cringe. But then she'll say, that was fun, as he pays her. And the shame will wash over her like a flood. This will be a night that she never forgets. She will remember it for the rest of her life and tears will flow, and then she decides she doesn't really want to do this anymore, and that's when another flip gets switched. Switch gets flipped. There we go. <laughs> and this time it's violence, or threats, or not just threats of violence, but threats of losing the love that he has offered her. This is sex trafficking, and unfortunately, this narrative or variations of it are all still too common in our culture for girls and boys that are growing up in our neighborhoods. 
it's not always a boyfriend. Sometimes it's a parent. Sometimes it's another girl. Sometimes it's the result of violent ab abduction. But the majority of the stories I hear from with folks that we work at at rest is the picture of this longing for love and connection with another person that has been used to exploit a young girl for the purpose of making money. In the life of sex trafficking, she may be forced to sleep with 10 to 15 men a day. She has to meet a certain quota or stay outside. She has to give all of the money to her pimp. If she breaks the rules, whatever his rules are, and every pimp has different rules, um, then she'll get a violent beating. She's not allowed to talk to law enforcement, and she can never try to leave. Sounds a lot like slavery, right? A lot like oppression. But it's not just girls. I want us to consider Lewis as well. Lewis ran away from home because his mother's boyfriend kept beating him up. For several months, he stayed with friends, but gradually he wore out his welcome. Now he can't go back to his mom's house, and he has no other options, so he starts staying at shelters. But some nights, the shelters are full. So he sits in front of late-night restaurants and bars asking for money. And it's not too long before an older man approaches him and offers to let him crash on his couch. Feeling grateful, Lewis goes. The first night, the man doesn't ask for anything in return, but the second night, he does. And within a few months, Lewis rotates between a few older men who pay for sex or provide a place for Lewis to stay. This is a life for Lewis. He identifies as heterosexual and the shame of what he is engaging in, the shame of being involved in the sex trade or potentially being identified as anything but heterosexual if he were to talk about it, keeps him from telling anybody about his engagement in exchanging sex for a place to stay or for money. Nearly half of sexually exploited youth are male, but almost all of the services are dedicated to girls and young women. It's less likely for the male trafficking victims to have a pimp, but the shame and stigma are severe. It's severe for girls too, but it is exponential for boys who are caught in the sex trade. Over 250,000 children in the U.S. are at risk for trafficking. One in three teens on the streets are recruited into prostitution within 48 hours of running away from home. This is a controversial statistic because it seems, it seems kind of intense. Like, really? That fast? That many? Um, but when the Seattle Undercover Unit does undercover stings at Westlake by posing to be a young teenage girl, they will be um, approached or recruited within usually 20 to 30 minutes of standing alone at the mall. 80 to 90 percent of girls and women involved in prostitution are under the control of a pimp and do not keep any of the money that they make. And this life is filled with trauma as well. Up to 95% experience physical assault. Up to 75% are raped. 68% meet the criteria for PTSD. And just to put this in perspective, this is a higher percentage than war veterans. Up to 95% experience sexual abuse as children. And the crux of it for me is that 89% wanted to escape but did not have other options for survival. So going back to that question of consent, is this really what they want to be doing? Do they believe they have another option? 89% would say no. 
That was a study done of 954 women involved in street prostitution. So let's talk about the buyers then. What is this dynamic and how does this play into the topic of social justice? So in King County, it's estimated that 20 to 25,000 men have purchased sex. There's over 100 websites available and typically buyers are white, middle and upper middle class married men. They work across all different professions and in one local review board that was recently closed down, there was 15 to 20,000 members. Now you remember those demographics I showed you about the victims who are involved in trafficking and disproportionately um, African-American victims. Well, here we see it's disproportionately white men who are buying sex. So if we think back in our history, even what we just heard about of the oppression of white people on against black individuals, it's still happening through the sex trade in other ways as well, but clearly here. I do want to say one more thing about sex buyers. I think it's easy to villainize sex buyers, and I think it's easy to set this up as a good person, bad person. Um, but we have some really great things happening in King County with buyers in which they're treating buyers as people who would like to stop buying sex and who would like to treat women with respect. Men are talking about the realities of being raised in a culture that sets them up to demand and expect girls and women to be used for their gratification. This is patriarchy and this is men's entitlement. The media reinforces this, education reinforces this, however they're raised in, um, with ideas or messages that if they want it, they can go and get it from a woman. Porn reinforces this. If the average age of first view viewing porn is 11 years old, and what they're finding in pornography is that ultimately it's whatever the man wants, and the girls are there, the women are there just to provide pleasure for the men, then they want to engage in society in the same way. That's what they're looking for. And when they find that in real relationship with a woman who's desiring equality and to be respected and to have a voice, the, where, the place where they turn to is the sex trade then. Because when they, believe they, when they pay for something, they believe they can demand whatever they want to be gratified. And yet, in research done locally with sex buyers, 76% say they would like to stop buying sex, but feel stuck. So there's hope there too. There's the possibility for redemption and restoration to take place for them as well. And the traffickers are pimps. I, I painted this picture a little bit of the boyfriend pimp, the, the one who's selling the dream and like offering this beautiful idea of the fantasy love. But sometimes it's another girl, somebody who is on the Greyhound bus and she sees a younger girl riding alone on the bus and she goes and sits next to her and finds out she doesn't have a place to stay when she gets there. And so she says, hey, well, you can come stay with me. And then within a few days or a few weeks, she's taking her out to the track, the place where you engage in street prostitution and teaching her how to turn tricks, how to take dates, how to sell sex for money. 
A gorilla pimp is somebody who's actually abducting or like physically taking somebody and will get rid of their cell phone and make sure they are disconnected from anyone in their community, takes them to another place where they don't know where they are, and a lot of time uses violence and threats to keep them um, docile and sometimes even drugs as well. And probably most horrifically um, in, my in my mind from the stories I've heard of girls that we worked with are when parents are the ones trafficking their kids. Uh, I know of mothers and fathers who have sold, the sold their children sometimes for money for rent, sometimes for money for beer, sometimes just for money. Um, and it's devastating. And I think it ties directly into the f having uh, so many girls who are experiencing the fatherlessness that we talked about, that Justin talked about earlier. Because he, because having a father who sells you, not having a father to protect you, like these things are feeding a young girl's and boy's sense of self-worth and sense of desire for that longing, for that love and that connection. And so it further leads them into this place of believing perhaps the sex trade is the only place where they will find that. And once they get in, it's even harder to believe they can get out because of the shame and the stigma that sets in. And especially because people in the sex trade communicate to one another that this really is all they're good for now. And so it's a message that starts early and then sinks in to the point where it's hopelessness sets in and it doesn't seem like they have another option. And so this is, I started learning about this back in 2007, 2008, and really felt like God was saying, this is, this is something that needs more attention. And I was working with homeless youth and young adults, and we realized while we were started to engage with young women who were being sexually exploited on North Aurora, that their access to services and their ability to um, be successful in a shelter or achieve goals was very different than those who, of youth who were just generally homeless. Because the level of trauma was so severe, untreated mental health issues, chemical dependency issues, whatever it may be, that really was driven by years and years and years of compounded trauma, made it really difficult to enter in and, and find the support they needed in mainstream services. And so with God's call on my heart, I stepped into wanting to build relationships with girls and young women in the sex trade and understand more. I personally am a survivor of complex trauma from my childhood, not in the sex trade, not in the sex industry, but I understand some of the barriers to being able to engage in healthy relationships, being able to um, know what is a healthy love, what is not a healthy love, what, what should I move towards and what should I say no to. It took a long time for me to work all of that out and figure that out. And I have much less trauma experience than many of the girls and young women that we work with. And so we started REST as, a, as an organization back in 2009 with the aim of building relationships. And I'm going to talk about relationships more in a minute. Ultimately, to provide a community, a safe place, a place of non-judgmental acceptance, a place where they could start to begin to dream again and hear that there are other options available and then help connect 
those young women and girls to those options so that their dreams, that their hopes, their goals could become a reality. We've grown over the years. Um, this, so this was in 2009. We're seven years old now, and we have four programs. Um, I won't go into all of that because you can always look at the website, and it's not really that important. But an example of something that might happen now is um, we'll have the police call us in the middle of the night who have just recovered a 16-year-old girl from a gang trafficking experience, and they bring her to rest at our 24-7 drop-in center. Um, where she meets with a survivor advocate who then helps her to stabilize, feel safe, um, and then finds the best kind of long-term option for her to transition to so that she can um, get far enough distance from those who are trafficking her and begin to start her own healing process. That's something that just happened a couple weeks ago. Um, Another example, we might have somebody who's 19 years old, ha has a pimp, but all, who's working via Backpage online and also in strip clubs. And she gets a text from our text outreach team of somebody who is also a survivor who says, hey, I was in the life for 15 years. Now I work at rest and I help those who are looking to get out of the life. It is possible. It can be done. Let me know if you want to talk. And she responds like, hey, what's this all about? And um, they engage in a conversation back and forth for a few days. And then she agrees to meet up with an advocate. And this is kind of blowing her mind, this idea that there actually is a whole community of people who are leaving the sex trade, that it's actually possible and she can have something different. And so she ends up interviewing to move into our residential program. Over six months, she goes to school. She gets her CNA certificate. She gets a job as a a nursing assistant in a nursing home. She buys a car, um, and she is getting ready to put down a, uh, a down payment or a first and last month's rent on an apartment to have her own stable place to live. Those are the beautiful things that can happen when we say, let's figure out how to create options for folks who actually believe there are no options available because society has set it up so that there are no options available. Let's make some inroads here so that healing really can happen. And ultimately, too, we really want to restore this sense of agency, this sense of self-efficacy, this sense of worth in themselves. They have been told over and over and over that not only are there no options available, but there is very little worth in who they are. That though somebody promised to protect them, he actually is the one who's hurting them. That though somebody promised to love them, he actually puts them in harm's way every day. And he sold this dream that is becoming a nightmare. And we can say there's actually a better truth. There's actually a better dream available. And the truth is that Jesus actually is a protector who never leaves. That Jesus actually does love and never forsakes. That he is able to take away shame and restore a sense of dignity and restore a sense of worth and value and bring hope back to life. That he offers a better dream than what those boyfriend traffickers offer. And so relationships are the key intervention because it's through the context of relationship that love is shared, that a sense of self-worth is restored, 
meeting people right where they are without an agenda, even the agenda of this kind of evangelism of let me tell you all about the love of Jesus, but instead demonstrating that presence of his love through compassion, through non-judgmental acceptance. We don't, we don't have to worry about whether or not somebody is following a certain moral standard. That's not really the, the thing that's most important. But the thing is to connect to the places in their heart where they have forgotten they have value and purpose, where they've forgotten they have worth, or maybe they've never known. And find those places to speak a word of love, to speak a word of connection and, and bring back a sense of worth. You know, I think about ways that I've grown up in the church and ways that I have engaged with a relationship with Jesus. And even though I've heard, like, we don't have to fix ourselves up in order to be loved by Jesus, in order to be accepted by him, I do think in some ways that is the, the message I received somewhere along the way. Maybe I didn't have to fix myself up before, but I sure feel like I need to fix myself up now, right? Or... Um, maybe it's in this church environment, like it doesn't quite feel okay to be still somewhat broken or unsure or not ready to change something that I've been holding on to for a long time. But Jesus doesn't make us fix ourselves up before he volunteered to suffer and die for us and cover us by his blood. And so we have a responsibility not to change the message, in the context of relationships with people who are just getting to know him or experience his love or just getting to know us and experience what love could possibly look like. Jesus pours out his love on us, delights in us, calls us friend, calls us beloved, regardless of where we ever land in the process of fixing ourselves up. It is the same and it is constant. So what does it look like for us to be a community that engages in that same way with those who are the most vulnerable around us, those who have been pushed to the outside, those who are involved in prostitution, those who are involved in the sex trade, who believe when they walk in through our doors that they're going to catch on fire. I don't know that they totally believe that, but they say that a lot. What would it look like for them to walk in through our doors and feel just as welcomed as anyone else who walks in through those doors? The church should be a place that's full of this potential, right? Because it's the gift we've received in Jesus. And yet somehow when our, our girls go into different churches, something happens where it does feel like there's a distancing or a, a question, a caution, a, maybe a, well, yes, there's love for you here and you're welcome here, but let's help you get your life in order. So there's still this qualification to be welcomed into the community of God. And I just wonder about that. Maybe, maybe Jesus has something different in mind. And so we get to ask ourselves, as, as the church, are we a welcoming community? And what does that mean? Not just on the first day, not just on the second day, but like even after months when somebody is still struggling to understand or hear or believe or adapt, like 
Is it okay to still welcome and love them just the same as that first day? Absolutely. And to welcome means to not have an, carry an agenda with it, but to say, I'm going to meet you right where you are, and I'm going to know you, and I'm going to listen, and I'm going to learn from you. And are we a safe community? So sometimes we, we think we're ready to engage with those who, are, who have experienced years and years and years of trauma. Um, for example, somebody comes in and they begin maybe after a few weeks to share a little bit of their past and, and a well-meaning individual might start asking all the kinds of questions about their history and what it was like and what did they go through and tell me about that without realizing that by bringing all of that trauma up to the service, to the surface, like we're leaving somebody in a place where they might not actually be able to cope with what that feels like as a result. But we're a storytelling people, aren't we? We love stories and we love hearing about one another. But there's something about making sure it's safe and making sure it's the appropriate time and the place. Maybe somebody comes in and shares their story of redemption and healing and that they've experienced in, in the community, in the context of the church, and they um, have been, uh, feel as though they've been recovered out of a life of sex trafficking, have been set free or experiencing hope for the first time. And because we love stories, we invite them to come up and share their story from the stage without realizing that somebody in one of the pews is a former buyer. Or without realizing what that's going to bring up for the person or all of the questions that are going to come now from the congregation to this person after sharing. Maybe she's not ready for that. How do we know? First, we need to know her and learn and listen and be patient. Making sure that our, where we're, how we are walking with somebody is not pushing them beyond where, they, where God is leading them and where they are ready to go and where, what is safe for them because of our own agendas or our own ideas of what it will look like to bring um, glory to God in a particular way. Are we an understanding community? Are we willing to get outside of whatever kind of ideas or a box that we have in view of what is right and what is wrong and, and what the sex industry looks like and are we willing to understand why somebody is making the decisions they're making without judgment or, or preconceptions but really listen and learn and say it's going to be okay brothers and sisters like it's going to be okay we're going to be okay even if somebody doesn't fully agree yet with where we're at kind of in the context of approaching the gospel of approaching scripture of approaching um, the community but we can listen and we can understand. And the more that we are willing to do that and understand and let somebody be who they are and build relationship with them over time, the more safety they experience, the more sense of self-worth they experience. And I think we're going to be so much more surprised to see the transformation that takes place with that growth and that realization that they are accepted for who they are and they are loved in those places than if we impose a certain trajectory on them, for them. And that requires patience and inconvenience. There's one of the reasons that mainstream 
um, services and practices don't necessarily work that well for victims of trafficking. Um, and that's because they expect everyone to fit into a particular mold. They go through a system and they take these classes and they take this type of counseling and then they're gonna get better. But that doesn't care for the individual. We are all uniquely created and we all have a unique history. And that informs how we show up today. And so in the same way, in the context of relationships, we get to know each person individually. Whether they come into our church, whether they come into rest, whether we meet them out on the street, we get to know them individually and understand that until we really get to know them and how they're uniquely made, we don't know what's best for them. And that we can offer that love and that compassion and that Jesus gives us to overflow to the world around us while we get to know them and then respond individually. This makes it a little bit more inconvenient than just the kind of cookie cutter responses. Um, but when a church embraces the idea of understanding the effects of trauma, understanding the effects of oppression on a whole community, understanding the historical trauma that plays into it from generations before, then we're able to respond with more humility, more patience, and we're willing to be more inconvenienced for the people around us. Individually, I think when we see something, we need to say something. And this, you know, not just the TSA anti-terrorism tag, which is also good, but when we see uh, something that looks suspicious like trafficking, like this boyfriend's pimp scenario, um, or when we see or hear a man say some things that is sexually objectifying about a girl or a woman, which perpetuates this idea that uh, girls and young women are meant for the sexual gratification of men, we say something. We say that's not okay. Because the more we can change that tide of culture, the less demand there is for the sex trade. We want our faith to inform how we engage with one another on this topic, um, but, but it doesn't need to replace competency. And I think that just goes back to what I was saying about um, engaging as a safe community, like really understanding the implications of, of having people in our community that have, that have severe levels of trauma. Like we need to understand that there are safe and unsa unsafe ways of interacting. And, and what does it look like to invest in time to learn that? And avoid sensationalism. I, I feel really sad when I see pictures of um, girls with duct tape and black eyes and, and chains around their hands as pictures of victims of trafficking because it sends this message of somebody who is helpless somebody who is um, kind of almost beyond help there and unable, who's weak. And what that inspires in us, especially I think in um, white privilege America, is I'm going to be the hero. I'm going to go in and rescue. I'm going to go in and save. And usually what that brings along with it is, and I know what's best but we don't always know what's best. And I think it takes away from the inherent dignity and value of each person who's being trafficked. 
And the fact that if somebody who is being trafficked saw that picture, they would not identify with it because they don't walk around with chains on their hands. And they're fighting to survive. And they have so many skills and strengths and abilities because they have lived and survived through so many different things. And so I think being careful with our messaging and being careful with how we portray people, not only for the message it sends to them, but also for the message it sends to us. Because we should not be the heroes of the story. Just like Justin was saying earlier, we are the recipients of God's love. We are on equal ground. We are at the same footing, rescued by Jesus, in need in the same ways. And when we approach a situation like trafficking, with the sense that we're going to be the hero and we're going to rescue, we go in with an agenda. And we're not as open to hearing from them what it is that they actually need and what would actually resolve this issue. I talked about talking to men, changing the culture, and jumping in, in general. Let's not keep this at arm's length away. Let's know that there, there, are, there is something that every person in this room can do to address this issue, because it's all around us. There are influencers that tell girls that being objectified is normal, that tell boys that objectifying girls are normal, is a normal practice. Like there are things we can do in our normal day-to-day conversations that influence this issue. And there are things we can do to show somebody who's been told over years and years and years that she is worthless because she is only good for sex, that we see her and that we know her and that she is worthy of something better and that there is a better dream available for her one that isn't dependent on the empty promises of someone who's just trying to exploit her for money. Thank you.